Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. In Her Room is supported by listeners like you. Contribute to keeping the show ad-free at patreon.com slash inherroom, or visit our website to make a one-time donation. Your support keeps women's voices on the air. This week's guest on In Her Room is Amanda Mays. Her storytelling carries a strong Southern influence. She seeks to publish work that inspires, surprises, and pushes the reader into new places. Amanda Mays feels the influence of her Louisiana home in all she does. Editor-in-chief of Kindred Magazine and Anchor and Plume Press, Amanda is willing to ask the hard questions and go deep into art, storytelling, and our human connections. Amanda, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to talk to you today. Uh, We have been able to work together on a couple of different projects, and you have so graciously invited me into the team for your press, Anchor and Plume, and I just have loved getting to know you and getting to work with you. So it's a real thrill to bring your work and your writing to a greater audience. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I want to talk about the press and the magazine that you run, as well as so many other things. But to start off, I'd love to know, what is writing to you? Oh, (laughs) writing is, it's how I figure out what I'm thinking and, and what I'm feeling. It's uh, it's an escape. As much as I love reading, I love writing equally. And so I, I, I could do either to escape. It's my, it's my happy place, really. Hmm. I love that. Writing is my happy place, too, I think. It, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I don't know. I know a lot of people complain about it. I realized when I said that it sounded really funny. But I know a lot of people, you know, you, you have the whole image of the... The, the writer that's struggling, and, and don't get me wrong, there are things sometimes I get frustrated, things that don't work, or but I en- it's, it's the puzzle that I enjoy, it's the kind of challenge that I enjoy, and um, it just, that's, it's, it's where I go when I need to, to find calm and to find my center or to figure out what's going on, I put pen to paper. And yeah, I do write longhand. <laughs> I really do put pen to paper. Yeah. So. I love that. I think there is something really magical about writing by hand. And I know that there are, you know, sometimes we run into struggles with our physical ability or being, you know, not able to write longhand, but there really is something that is such a gift about sitting down with a piece of paper and a pen and, and scrawling it out and taking that time to exactly have to slow your thinking down a little bit in order to match your writing speed. Exactly. It does. It does force you to slow down and just to kind of, um, you know, sink into that moment, almost like go into this state of reverie, if you will. And um, it, it is sometimes I I think I if if I could see myself writing, I might see my eyes kind of rolled back or glazed over or something because I feel like I am in an altered state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can relate to that, and it's also interesting. Like you, I am also an editor, and I edit by hand. Mm -hmm. I print off a manuscript, I make my notes, I make changes, and then I go back and read it a second time as I'm putting it into a, a document on the computer to track the changes or send it back to a client. And there's something really magical about editing by hand that I think is lost if we only edit on the screen. Absolutely. Whether I'm um, working on a book for the press or or the magazine or whether I'm doing work for a client, it gets printed out and it gets marked over with my pen. And, you know, I go through several versions of it with different colored pens to save the trees so I don't print it out each time, (laughs) you know, and, um, Mm -hmm. and, and then, and then I do put my notes into the document and send them off. But um, I prefer to read from a a book in in my hands as opposed to off of a screen. And so, for example, there's an article that I stumble across online and and it's something that 
really intrigues me or that just appeals to me in some way, I will print it off to read it uh, later so that I don't have to read it on screen. And after I'm done with it, it goes into the scrap paper pile for my kids to do their things on, you know. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I have a hard time reading on screen because for me it doesn't allow me to um, – to immerse myself there's it's just the oh you know this link will lead me here and this link will lead me there and I start chasing rabbits mm-hmm. I can relate entirely I find that a lot of times when I am sitting with a book or if I somebody sends me a book electronically I will often if I find that I'm getting into the book and really enjoying it as the writing I will go and and order the book from the library or if I can't find it there, purchase it so that I can actually have a physical copy and continue reading it that way because it it just means so much more to me. Absolutely. I love to read before bed and I, you know, they say that you should turn your screens off an hour before bed and I'm like, well, I can't read a digital book before bed then. Right. I guess I'll just have to buy a new book. Well, and I mean, even when we send out manuscripts for for blurbs, I'm when I email a prospective blurb writer, I, I tell them I'm happy to send you a digital file or to print it out and send it to you via <laughs> snail mail because I know my preference is for snail mail. Mm-hmm. When if if someone's sending me a copy for review, I want a physical copy. If it's sent as a PDF or as a something to read on the Kindle, I just I won't read it. Yeah, and that. And my daughter has a Kindle and she loves it. So, <laughs> you know, just different people or do different things. But that's my, my affinity is definitely for paper. Hmm. And I know part of that is generational, I'm sure. But there's also just something really important about getting physical with a book and with words that I think is lost. Exactly. And I do. I, I read with a pencil. I mean, when I'm reading a book for pleasure, not for work, I read with a pencil in hand and I have a little slip of paper in there so I can make my notes and have my erotic. I mean, my books, If I guess if anyone were to look through my books, they would probably do some sort of weird psychological study on me, given the errata in my margins. You know, <laughs> I'm just <laughs> so I, I, I do. Um uh, so I don't usually get a bunch of books from the library because I, I, I feel this overwhelming compulsion to get out my pencil and, you know, <laughs> if I don't know this word, I'll write it down on my little paper or I make little stars by things I like. Mm-hmm. So, it's a it it is an interactive experience for me. Absolutely, and so we've mentioned that you work as an editor. You do both editing manuscript editing for freelance clients as well as running Anchor and Plume Press and being the founding editor of Kindred Magazine. Yes. I want to talk first about the press, Anchor and Plume. Okay. And I'd love to hear the story about how that came to be. Uh, how did that come, come to be? Um, because I have a gracious and supporting husband. <laughs> no, he, he's, he, um, you know, I, I told him I had this idea for Kindred and um, in a press, and he thought, really? And, and I could see, and I kept talking about it, and finally he said, if that's what you want to do, let's do it. And so we thought, hmm, let's run with an issue of Kindred and see if there's any interest in it before we, you know, do this whole machine with the press and everything. And and there was, and, and it was well-received. And so I told him, I said, we, we can do more than this magazine. I, I want to do books. I want to support other writers and put their work out into the world. And I don't like the whole um, gatekeeper aspect of big publishing. You know, you have to know somebody or you have to have studied with somebody to have your manuscript read um, the truth is, it's just a bunch of interns sorting through manuscripts and deciding what to pass on or not. And I'm sure that they overlook many really good quality manuscripts. And um, I want to invest in people's lives. I, I, I like making relationships with people. I think it's that Southern thing in me to, you know, oh, oh, well, I know so-and-so and and he can help you do this. I mean, if someone has a problem, I'm automatically thinking, who can I 
call on to help them. So that's how the press came about. I wanted to put out the writing of people who otherwise might not be heard or might not be read. And my husband just graciously said, do it. Mm. So that's how that's how that happened. Um, in college, I, ra- I ran a zine with a friend and it's just, it's, I guess it's always been in my blood, the writing and the, the pulling together of work and curating it. And I can't get away from it, apparently. <laughs> and you mentioned the the curation and the, the really investing in people. And I think that's such an important aspect of a small press and particularly a small press that really puts out the kind of quality work that I think Anchor and Plume is known for. There is an element of the unexpected when reading something that I think sometimes gets lost. And it's one of the things that drew me to Anchor and Plume and also to Kindred, the the sort of magazine companion. And so I love that about Anchor and Plume and the, the magazine is that sense of unexpected. And I'm I'm not always certain what I'm going to find when I crack it open. Right. But I know it's going to be great. And I know that I'm going to be amazed or inspired or maybe even shocked by it. Well, thank you. I think that's a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Even the shocked part. No, I just, you know, small press can do small press can be mighty even without the big bucks in the machine to, to send people on tours and, and, you know, host huge reading events. There's a lot of people that support small press and I firmly believe in it. I firmly believe in the printed word. And, um, I don't care if you've never published a thing or if you only had a poem published in your high school newspaper we do, you know, when, when you submit, we ask for a publication history. If you have one, we ask for a bio. You don't get judged on those. We are looking simply at the writing. So whether you're someone that has been writing for 10 years and has a publication history the length of my arm, or whether you're a stay-at-home mom who has started writing and just has found that this is her niche and that she has a, a true talent for it. You're, you, you still have the chance to get published with small press, or at least with our small press, mm-hmm. um, because it's not based upon your, your history or, or anything like that. We, we really do look at it uh, for the writing. Sometimes I don't know if it's a female or a male that wrote it. I don't know what their religious perspective is. I don't know what their socioeconomic level. I don't know a lot of that because I just see black and white words on a thing and and I read and I'm either moved or I'm not Mm. and if I moved I'll try to find a home for it Mm -hmm. so you know even if I get to the bottom of a poem I'm going not quite sure but then those last couple lines just really just they're a zinger you know they knock it out of the park yeah I want that poem I don't (laughs) care if you're a mechanic and or what what you do. I just, I want that poem in my magazine. Hmm. So. And I want to talk a little about the magazine and I'd love it if you could share a little about the, the sort of core theme of the magazine and maybe talk a little about the current open submissions period. Okay, so maybe for the core theme, what I can do is um, we've reformatted the magazine a little bit for this um, issue that's coming out, uh, the fall-winter issue. So it's going to be smaller, 6 by 9 It's got more writing in it, though, believe it or not. And at the beginning of the magazine now, we have a couple of paragraphs that just tell you what Kindred is. Kindred is a biannual literary magazine that embraces the messy, the meaningful, the people and places we hold near and dear to our hearts. Each issue is filled with poetry, short stories, and creative nonfiction that not only proclaims but seeks to exalt the existence of our ordinary lives. At Kindred, we publish writing that celebrates language and place, work that is smart and thoughtful, work that explores the intersections of the personal and the geographic. We welcome your mighty yops, your whisperings, your exquisite imaginings. 
We want to explore your themes and your characters that bring home the idiosyncrasies, the landscapes, the language, the memories to the table and remind us what it means to be human. If you have ever taken a moment to pause over a perfectly turned phrase or a story that moved you, Kindred was created just for you. So that's going to be in the front of Kindred from here on forward. I love that. I, I think it sums it up pretty nicely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, it, and you know, it, 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 it was born of that Southern penchant for storytelling. I love hearing people's stories, personal and uh, just the anecdotal variety. I love cataloging those in my mind. And that translated into, you know, helping people with their stories with the press and kindred. I just, I like story. Mm. And that's where it came from. I think that's so great. I love that real Southern storytelling experience. It's it's funny to me how <laughs> I've always been drawn to Southern writing. Um, I love I love Southern writing, and I particularly I have a secret love that's now no longer secret <laughs> for Southern Gothic writing. Oh yes, oh yeah. I. I am a Southern Gothic fan through and through. And I'm hoping that, okay, so so our spring, summer, um, the issue for spring, summer 2016, the theme is Mason Dixon. So it's going to be writing in and of the South. It doesn't matter if you're from Poughkeepsie or if you're <laughs> from Macon, Georgia. We want stories about the South um, or that evoke the feeling of the South. And I would be so thrilled. I mean, I would I would do my editor's happy dance if I saw some Southern Gothic come across my desk. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> I think that's great. You don't want to see my editor's happy dance, but I promise you I will do it. <laughs> well, and I think there's just something so unique about, about Southern writing and particularly Southern Gothic that is just unlike stories from any other part of the world. But it's funny to me because I grew up an hour south of the Canadian border in Minnesota. I grew up as far away from the south as you could possibly get and still be American. And yet Southern writing and Southern Gothic is, is what I was always drawn to reading, always as a kid. And so I think there's just something really special about that Southern storytelling experience. It, um, you know, it's interesting. I was at a symposium all day Saturday with some, some writers and poets, and several of them had never been to the South. They love Southern literature, but they'd never been to the South. So they were experiencing it in a whole new way because they, they, they thought they knew the South through the writings of uh, Faulkner and Williams and Welty. And then they came down here and it was different. And um it, 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 was, it was interesting to see their reactions and to, to, to watch them just absorb it. And it'll be interesting um, to see how, I, I would like to, to see it come up in their writing. I'd like to see how that might find its way, the feeling or the food or um, just the, the textures here might find their way in, into the writing of these writers that I spent the weekend with. I love that. And I think it's one of the gifts about the South is that there's so much nuance in the South. I mean, oh yes, Savannah is different from Atlanta, is different from Mobile, is different from New Orleans. Exactly. But they're all Southern and yet so different. And I think that's one of the real gifts about having a, a storytelling genre that is based in a place that has such diversity. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and it's, you know, the places that you mentioned, uh, Savannah, Mobile, New Orleans, they were, well, probably not so much New Orleans, but the other parts of Louisiana, you know, that was all an agricultural, um, that was, that was the agricultural epicenter of the South, that, that band across the, the Gulf states down there. Whereas Florida is Southern geographically, right. Texas is Southern geographically. But the writing from those places or the natives of those places is an entirely different thing. 
than the writing from that comes out of Georgia or um, even Tennessee or Kentucky. It's, right. it's, it's, a, it's a very different writing and um, it is Southern, but to me, it's, it's a different Southern. Absolutely. I have to agree wholeheartedly. And I think that's such a fun thing to experience. Yes. And also to be able to read all of those different kinds of Southern stories and find the ones that really resonate with us. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, it's the stories of uh, Louisiana and a little bit of Mississippi, I think, Georgia. But mostly right. for me, it's it's Louisiana. And then it's also those sort of Northern, Southern states of Kentucky and Tennessee and West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the Appalachian writing, this, the, the writing from, you know, Appalachia, and then there's the writings from the Deep South. And while I think that those two are more closely linked than, say, the writings of the Deep South in Texas, they, they are extremely different. I mean, just like um, you consider Louisiana and everybody thinks, oh, the Cajuns. Well, that's a really broad stroke. <laughs> because the truth is, there was nothing Cajun about New Orleans. It was settled by the French. Right. And the Cajuns, and even among the Cajuns, if you go to the Lafayette area toward, you know, Acadiana, even among the Cajuns, you have the Prairie Cajuns, and then you have the Coastal Cajuns. Right. Where their diets, their things are so different. And so so I hate to paint anything with broad strokes, um, but there is a there is something about the writing from the Deep South that is um, unique, I think. Absolutely. And very rich. Very rich and nuanced and full as well. Ex- exactly. It's it's like um, being invited to someone's house for dinner and they serve you this really beautifully composed meal with, you know, the two spinach leaves and the tiny little scallop and the little sprinkling of chives on top or whatever it is. And you're thinking, well, this is great. It tastes great, but man, I'm still hungry. Mm-hmm. Whereas reading um, that literature, you know, reading Welty or reading O'Connor and, and reading these, these writers that I associate with the deep South, I kind of have to push back from the table and take a breath yep. <laughs> before I can go on because you know, as we'd say down here, they're not going to leave you hungry. They just, they, they fill you up Mm -hmm. on so many levels. Absolutely. Well, speaking of Southern writing, I would love it if you might read some of your work for us. (laughs) Okay. So I have been at work on a collection of short stories and a novel. And, um, I've actually with, my grandfather was really ill over the summer and he passed away a few weeks ago. And, um, I was very, very close to, to my grands. And, um, so it's been a really hard thing and I've been processing it through writing. And, um, so the short stories, the novel have been ignored largely, uh, because I've been writing out of this grief, but I do have the beginnings of a short story that I'm quite happy with. And I'll read that if you'd like. It's called uh, Night Swimming. If you know my dad, you know him as Mr. Henry. Not Peter, not Pete. Mr. Henry. My mother actually calls him Mr. Henry. Growing up, I'd ask if I could spend the night at Kelly's house, and without fail, she'd respond, You'll need to ask Mr. Henry. Dinner time would roll around, and the bowl of new potatoes swimming in butter sprinkled with fresh parsley would be proffered to my father by my mother. Potatoes, Mr. Henry? It became a game between my sisters and me, talking about him and banding his name back and forth. Pete, casually rolling off the tongue, sometimes Peter. The game was to see how long we could discuss him using his first name without dissolving into fits of giggles. It never lasted long, and that was probably a good thing, because had he heard us talking about him and referring to him so casually, our asses would have been red for days. If there was one thing in the world Mr. Henry wanted besides a 1962 Corvette, it was a son. A son he would name King. King Henry. Seven daughters later, my mother was worn out, my dad still hopeful. And the day my mother told Mr. Henry she was pregnant yet again, he pronounced that this one would be his long-awaited son and he would be called King Henry. King Henry VIII, because he was the eighth child of Mr. Henry. 
Knowing my mother, she rolled her eyes, wiped her hands on her apron, and headed back into her room for some much-needed rest. The eighth child revealed itself just short of nine months later, making her grand entrance into the world in our front sitting room because Mama had waited too long to begin her journey to the hospital. Undaunted, Mr. Henry declared her to be a beauty and patted Mama on the shoulder, saying, Next time. Now, while I have no proof of this, I'm pretty sure a part of Mama wanted to die when she heard those two words. But like clockwork, 22 months after the birth of his eighth daughter, Mr. Henry caught his ninth child, this time in the foyer, a daughter. He looked at that squawking, scrunched-up, red-faced girl and said, I think it's about time we give up this baby business. Mama began crying. I'm guessing those were tears of relief rather than maternal tears of joy. So there you have it, a good Irish Catholic family living in New Orleans' Irish Channel. Mr. Henry, Mama, named Bridget, and their nine daughters, all named for one of the muses. Yes, the muses, as in the nine muses from Greek mythology, which might have explained Mr. Henry's willingness to stop after the birth of Urania. Mr. Henry took it upon himself to name us, allowing Mama to bestow upon us a middle name. She was inspired by gemstones. I've heard him try to pass off our names as erudite choices, a result of his extensive reading and efforts at bettering himself. Knowing Mr. Henry and his penchant for cock and bull stories, something he elevated to a fine art, he grew up seeing these names on street signs his whole life and thought them exotic. The fact that he knew them to be the muses tells me his curiosity drove him to look into the names at some point. But I dare say he couldn't tell you who was the muse of what. My sisters and I were the muses, his muses, his mostly ignored muses, but his nonetheless. Calliope, Cleo, Erato, Euterp, Melpomene, Polymnia, Serpsichore, Thalia, Urania. I'm Polymnia Pearl, or Pearl as my sisters call me, the sixth child of Mr. Henry and Mama. And that's the beginning of a story. <laughs> hmm. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I can't wait to read the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's almost it's almost done. It's um it's a crazy story born out of several experiences and and things and people I've known and um it's it's one of the stories that came so easily to me as I sat down to write it it was it, it kind of made me wonder if it was any good or not mm. <laughs> so no, I've it been is. playing with it for a while you know? <laughs> it's good I promise <laughs> well thank you <laughs> so um anyway I just it's just you know having lived in New Orleans it's it, it was such a it's such a rich place to draw from. And um, I hadn't done a story about my time there yet. And so this, there's this one. And of course, it's going to be set in, uh, you know, 1970s New Orleans. And um, they live in the Irish Channel. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, I, I love these people in this story. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am really excited. Thank you so much for sharing that. My pleasure. I'd love to know the best advice you've ever received. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? Um, I don't know. I guess it, whatever good advice I've received has probably come from my husband um, it, as words of encouragement to just, you know, to try and to, you know, if, if it doesn't work out, we'll try again tomorrow. He, he's been incredibly supportive and I've learned how to um, pick myself up and dust myself off and um, honestly he's he's taught me what it means to be strong and to take chances and so it's I, I couldn't tell you the exact words but I know that it came out of his mouth and from his heart <laughs> so I love that uh, he, we uh, yeah we we have um, a very close relationship both creatively and you know in life and um he's he's inspired so very much he's 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 been a tremendous um asset in my life mm. so so I know it came from him <laughs> <laughs> the courage to do all of this the press and the, the editing and to put myself out there it's it's because of his encouragement so whatever the exact words may be they flow from him, and that's all I know. That's wonderful. Speaking of your husband and family, you are a working mother. You run a press and a magazine and a 
are a writer and editor and are also a mother to six kids. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) And I, one of the things that I love about you is the way that family is so much a part of your presence, uh, in your online presence, family is really very central. And I'd love to know how you juggle being a mother of six and working and creating these beautiful literary works in the world. Sometimes gracefully and sometimes not so gracefully, occasionally with a slew of expletives. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there, there is no balance really there there is there is no perfect balance and i can't say that i so so in the you know in the mornings i get up for example and i'll work out and take a shower and then um while well, my kids are eating and then we do school i homeschool my kids and um after that the afternoons are mine to to work and um from a young age when most kids would take naps my children quit taking naps. And so from a young age, they were trained to have quiet time every day after lunch, whether that was to read or to draw or paint or play quietly in their room. And we still do that. And in those two hours, I can get a tremendous amount of uh, emails taken care of and and, and work done. And um, that's how I do it. And of course, you know, we had a, a my husband was with them all day Saturday so that I could be gone for 12 hours at this poetry thing and, and reception and go to dinner with writers and do the things I needed to do. So I couldn't do it without him. And, um, I enjoy being with my children immensely. This is coming from a woman who never wanted children, did not like children and, uh, really has a low tolerance for children, but I love mine. (laughs) And I just think that, they are the bee's knees and they're fun. And uh, I can't imagine not having them around. So even when I go to the office, sometimes they'll go and they work in the next office and they draw or do whatever they do. Um, my seven-year-old is writing a book right now. Now his writing is not great because he had some delays. He's on the spectrum and um his reading, he reads a little slower than most kids his age, but he's drawing the pictures and he asks us to help him spell out the words. And he's writing a book about rabbits for his sister. And so his goal is, if it's really good, will I publish it? Aww. <laughs> so there will probably be a one-off of his book about rabbits. Um, <laughs> because, um, you know, they, they've seen both my husband and I work creatively and teaching ourselves new things and struggling And so they're taking that on and they're very creative. And um, so it's a joy to be with them and to watch what they're putting out into the world. So I don't know how I do it. I just, my family first and foremost is is it. And um, honestly, if if it wasn't for them, I probably wouldn't do this because I would be a professor somewhere. And, uh, but because I have them, I, I, I get the look, I get the benefit of being able to be home and, and, and work still. It's the best of both worlds for me. Aww, I love that. Thank you. I want to see this book about rabbits too. I will I will let you know. They, <laughs> um, and, they and, and they're all working on a, a book together as well. We we had this idea that they would work on this book together, um, all working on the story. Well, the the older five, the sixth just turned a year, so you know. But um, and then they're they're going to illustrate it because my husband is actually a painter and um, he's an incredible painter. And while I cannot draw a stick figure to save my life, my kids can draw so well. Even my husband's impressed because he couldn't draw that well when he was their age. So it's um so they're working on projects together and the older kids are shepherding the younger kids and they're all kind of working together and very collaboratively and um so I don't know I mean you see stuff like that and you think well if I have to work till midnight to get my work done it it was worth it to spend the time watching that and being a part of that mm. you know Mhm Absolutely Absolutely I want to shift gears a little bit and I I want to talk about your work as an editor. 
not just for the press and for the magazine, but but actually the work of being an editor. Um, okay. Mostly because I haven't had the chance to have a lot of editors on the show. Um, and I think it's a really unique aspect of writing that I think as editors, we sometimes get a bad rap. Um, oh, really? You think? <laughs> and uh, so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about for you, what it means to be an editor and to work with a an author on their manuscript? My goal when I'm working on something for a client, um, whether it's materials for their business, printed p- materials, or, or whether I'm helping someone with a collection of poems or stories, my goal is that my presence is not noticed. I mean, it's, it's noticed in the sense that everything reads beautifully but I don't want them to to know that I was there meaning um I'm not a very heavy-handed editor what I do is uh, I read the work and sometimes I'll read it two or three times and then I go on about my life and things start popping up in my head I find that I work really well when I'm doing other things my subconscious just kind of continues working and so then I'll get back to the work after I have a few ideas, and um, I, I look at it from, I look at it as a whole. You know, does this work? How can we make this flow better? And then I get all that situated, things moved around if I need to. And at that point, then I work on it at a micro level, like a just the macro level, looking at something really close at at the sentence structure. Um, does this sentence flow nicely into the next sentence? And then, of course, at the very end, you know, I'll tackle grammar, um, punctuation, and things like that for people. So it really, when I do work with a client, it gets it get, the work gets read a lot, and um, I guess I, I go through three different edits with a with a piece. Does that make sense? Like from the like the long shot, and then mm-hmm. the macro, and then the the actual um, punctuation and grammar. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think I really love how you you sort of have a, a leave no trace approach. <laughs> well, I mean, it's sort of a leave no trace, but it's really the the idea of so I often hear from writers that they're worried that an editor is just going to destroy their story or or shred the work and and I think some I think so many of us have this memory maybe this inherent fear of the red pen oh yes from our childhoods and I hear that from a lot of writers but I really love that you have the sense and the approach of editing as to leave it so that you know your presence isn't overwhelming in the work absolutely there's an expression down here um, that you don't want to feel someone's toes in your shoes and um, I liken it to let's say that you live in a nice house and you're going to have guests over and you have a maid. I don't have that luxury and I wish I did, but you know, they come before everyone comes and they ready your house, right? They make sure that the services are clean and the house is spick and span and just so that people can walk in and be wowed. Well, that's what I'm there to do with your writing. Um, it's your writing and, um, it's not mine and you have your voice and I have my voice and my job is to make sure that it, you come through that, that what you're trying to say comes through and the reader um, can, can lose themselves in, in, in your writing and, and just be transported. And so I, I look at it like I, I put a shine on it basically. Um, but hopefully people won't know like I would never want someone to to look at something someone's written and say, "Oh, Amanda did that. That sounds like Amanda," because that would tell me that I failed greatly, and mm-hmm. I need to give those people their money back. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I just want to make it shine so that when you know people say, "Wow, I really love what you did with blah blah blah," and you can say thank you and put a feather in your cap and move on about your day. That's I'm I'm there for support. Really, I look at myself as a support system. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I love that. I think a lot of times when I'm working with my editing clients, I'm doing some level of 
developmental editing and really looking at this is the story you want to tell and and maybe you're struggling with Mm -hmm. getting the structure or the flow and 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 I feel like that's such a gift because in some ways it feels a little bit like for me it feels a little like stepping into someone else's shoes not so that they can feel my toes when they put them back on, but so I can really get a sense of how another writer is thinking and processing through a story, which is a real gift for me, both as an editor and a writer. Well, and I think that that's a huge, you make an excellent point. There are a lot of people that want to, let's just say a blog post for, for sake of argument. You know, they want to make a blog post about this, X, Y, Z. And sometimes I think they forget how, how to draw people in and how to wrap it up at the end. And they know that they want to make the, this, this point, this X, Y, Z, but they're not quite sure how to get there. And so that's, you know, what we do when we look at the work mm-hmm. from, from, the, you know, from the, the long shot. You know, you think about movies and they have that big establishing shot. Right. To show you that you're in the desert and it's hot and you're thirsty and all that stuff. Well, that's what we do. We, we start there and we try to, you know, we, we talk to them. Well, what are you trying to accomplish with this? What, um, who's your narrator? What's the conflict? Because sometimes people don't know what kind of conflict it is. They can't tell you, is this, um, you know, person versus society? Is this person versus self? Or, or they, they, they don't know. They just know that they want to tell a story and they don't realize that it needs to have certain, meet certain criteria. And so my job is to draw that out of the people and make sure that that's what's showing in their work. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, even working with writers, with the press, um, putting books together to, to publish, you know, do you have an idea about your book cover? Well, they're not sure. And you realize that they don't know how to talk to you in terms of design. So the easiest thing to say then is, well, why don't you look around at books, look around online. Is there a font that you love? Is there a font that you hate? Is there a book cover that you absolutely love? Are there colors that you love? Are there colors you don't want to see on your book? Sometimes it's easier for them to, to, to send you links and to send you things from online, you know, create a little private Pinterest board so that you can create and do your stuff because um, for so, if I were to say I want my cover to be sleek and minimalist and gray, that's going to mean different things to different people. Mm-hmm. And so um, whether it's with covers, whether it's with writing, it's, it's all about communication. So I do um, welcome my clients when, when I send them edits back. I hope to hear back from them. I don't want them to just take it and say, oh, okay, thanks. I want to know, because I try to explain each and every change that I recommend, and I try to give um, an example of how I would change it or a suggestion for how I would, you know, change this thing in the third paragraph. And so I do hope to hear back from them, and um, I guess in that way, I, I do think of it as a collaboration. Definitely. Well, and I think also one of the blessings for me being a writer and an editor is I always learn from my editing clients. Oh, yes. You know, that is such a huge gift to be able to learn and to take in whether it's technique or a style that's being used or whether it's something as simple as a turn of phrase. It's it's such a it's such a blessing, I think, and, and not a blacklisted it's not a blacklisted job. Right. And it's not just from my editing clients, but I, I love reading for the press because mm-hmm. I see a lot of great stuff and I see a lot of stuff that could be really great if it just did this. And I, um, it's, it's like having a crash MFA and <laughs> you, yes. you know, it's just, you, you, you see so much after a while. And, um, the, the biggest disappointment for me with the press is that, I don't have time to, for example, if you send something in and I and we, we can't publish it for whatever reason, even though it has potential, I'll, we'll write you back. You will say, you know, this has potential. It's just not a good fit for the way that the issue shaped up or whatever it is. I just don't have time to tell everybody what I would do to fix that, hmm. you know, so that I could have run it. Or um, that's 
for me, the hard part is I could probably be writing a lot of emails <laughs> about, <laughs> you know, just do this. And I know it's going to get picked up. And mm-hmm. I, I, with the volume, the sheer volume makes that impossible. Yeah. I'd love to give you a chance to share some of your parting wisdom with listeners, something that fits with you and that is a benefit to folks who may be new to publishing or sharing their work who might want to learn more about the press or just about writing in general. Well, the the most important thing for me, and I think that for most writers, is the importance of writing every day. Um, Maybe you can't write for an hour every day. I know I can't write for an hour every day. But I do make a point to write every day and work on whatever it is I'm working on. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, I have several things that I'm working on as far as stories and then these writing, these essays on grief and a novel. And I will work on the novel for a while and then I get stuck and I'll turn to something else and I'll start working on it. And to me, it doesn't matter what I'm working on as long as I am working and moving forward because it's, it keeps you in the groove and it keeps your mind in that place where you're thinking about uh, words and structure and word play, noticing I find that the more I'm writing, the more I notice just beautiful language in the things that I'm reading or in the world around me, things people say, I think, oh, that would be beautiful. I need to, I need to put that phrase in a, in a story. Um, so it's, 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 it's constantly having that writer mentality, even if it's 10 minutes a day. Um, because when I'm not writing, then that part of me just shuts off and the creative part of me needs to keep going. And the constant writing, it's practice, it's practice, it's practice, it's practice. And one day it might be perfect. So that would be my biggest piece of advice, I think. And when I teach writing classes, that's my, I guess that's my, my one thing I would insist on is if you're going to take a class with me when I have taught, they have to make a commitment to write every day for at least 15 minutes. Mm. I mean, you, I mean, you, you write as well. Don't you find that the writing every day, the, the working on your project every day just moves it forward in incremental ways? I do. I think sometimes I, I don't always put pen to paper writing every day. Sometimes writing, my daily writing might be reading something I've written for a project or mm-hmm. editing it. Um, so putting pen to page that way, I do a lot of the the subconscious work of thinking about what I'm writing or when I'm working with a, an editing client, thinking about what I'm editing. Um, but I, I have to engage in some way every day to to keep things moving forward because otherwise, you know, I have stacks of ideas. Exactly. Otherwise, it's too easy to just keep playing hooky. Exactly. And that would be my other, I think... You know, you mentioned the the working subconscious. I think we've both tapped on this point at some point during this conversation. But one of the big things I have told that working with um, moms or people that are new to writing and who have a, a busy life, go ahead about your business. Do you, Do the laundry, cook the soup, chop the onions, do all the things you have to do because all that living and all that stuff, you're still in your head creatively working and writing and it just accumulates and it accumulates and it accumulates. And when you do have that time, you'll sit down and the writing will be richer for it because you've, you've been working on it subconsciously for so long that, you know, so it's, it's okay to get caught up in the the dailiness or the responsibilities of being a mom or the responsibilities of being a caregiver to your elderly parent, because something fruitful will come out of that. It's, um, I, I do a lot of my best work in my subconscious mm-hmm. while I'm kneading dough for bread. I'm thinking about writing or essays or editing work. And that's when my ideas come to me that are in the shower where I can never write anything down, <laughs> <Yep. laughs> you know? So, um, so I guess, you know, don't think that you can't do it because you're busy with little kids or you're busy taking care of an ailing parent or spouse. 
Um, or maybe your spouse travels a lot and you're home alone. Well, that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. It Just start working when you can. And you'll find that even as you go about your day-to-day, you'll still be working. Your subconscious will still be chewing over those ideas. And when you can sit back down, you'll be surprised at what you come out with. Absolutely. I think, and I think it's really important to remember and to be okay with just the living part of it and to not, to not let yourself feel guilty for living. And absolutely, absolutely. Because if you're not living, what kind of stories are you going to have? Where are you going to find the inspiration? Exactly. Where are you going to hear the music and language that, you know, a child has if you're too busy ignoring them? I mean, there's a time and a place to lock yourself away and and get all that out. But that's at the end and the editing and all this. You got to live to to write. Mm. They they go. You have to live to write. You have to read to write. You have those things all go hand in hand. Living, reading, writing. Um, I don't know that one. I don't know if I could do one without the other two. Absolutely. They're such. They're so tied together for me. I love that, Amanda. It has been so great having you on the show today. I Thank just feel you. so blessed. That you said yes. Of course I would do this for you. <laughs> really, I'm honored that you came back around and asked me again. I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it. Oh, well, it is, it's truly a gift and it is an honor for me as well to be able to share your work and your writing with so many people. Thank you. If listeners want to learn more about you and your work, as well as the press and the magazine, they can find out everything about you at thehabitofbeing.com. Yes, that's my personal blog. And then the press is um, anchorandplumepress.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackburn. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with writer, coach, and Viking woman, Randy Buckley. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.